Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I interview figurative painter Florine Demostan. She was born in the United States and raised between Haiti and New York. She currently resides in Ghana, where she moved after abruptly deciding to build her practice without the drama of being an artist in New York City. Florine earned her Bachelor of Fine Arts from Parsons School of Design and her MFA from Hunter College. She has exhibited extensively through group and solo exhibitions in the U.S., Caribbean, U.K., Europe, and Africa. She has shown with the Marianne Ibrim Gallery in both a solo booth and group show at the New York Armory Fair in 2019 and 2020. She is a recipient of a Toulouse Artist Fellowship the Arts Moose African Grant and a Joan Mitchell Foundation Grant. She's quite impressive, and it gives me pleasure to welcome Florine to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Florine, welcome. Thank you for coming uh, to my studio, my apartment, <laughs> to be interviewed. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So you're here for? Uh, the Armory, Armory Fair. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. I saw your work at uh, Marianne's booth, and it's stunning. It's Thank beautiful. You. Thank you. So I really do want to talk about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you first realized that you're an artist, going way back to your childhood. So share that with us. Um, I would say art found me versus me finding art. That's wonderful. Uh, I was always interested in making things, but more like uh, more structural, engineering, electrical type thing. Art really happened at university level when I was studying architecture, and I took a sculpture class to alleviate the stress of architectural programs, known affectionately as meat grinders, because (laughs) it was incredibly intense. So I wanted to try something different. And um, I would just sort of make these quirky sculptures and I would get all this tremendous amount of feedback. So all of a sudden it was great not to have this sort of mechanical, analytical process and to have this space where you can sort of explore different things and materials. And um, I left there and went to Parsons. I said, okay, I'm going to go for the BFA and I'll go back and do... Uh, graduate degree in architecture and that just never happened so yeah it sort of found me and I just kept at it and kept working towards it and trying to see like what I want to say with what I was learning 
And I just loved every aspect of it, too. I've always been a materials and maker person. So that was just like, yes, I'm in that, you know, that area. So how did you experiment? Did you start with sculptures? Yeah, I started with sculptures. Um, by the time I got to Parsons, I focused a lot on drawing because I was not necessarily good at drawing. So I had to really work towards that. But at the same time, like sculpture just came really easy because I just love mix matching things, um, trying to create particular patinas out of limited materials. I think I think my senior year I made teeth out of clay oh. and it looked like real teeth. No one, they were like, where did you get this teeth? You created like this ruckus. But it was made out of clay and I was figuring out how to patina with wax and gold leaf. So there was always this sort of um, interest in materials and how to manipulate the materials. And at that time, too, I had been looking at a lot of um, West African artifacts. So, you know, the masks and sculptures from wood and how over time, especially the ones that they used to make offerings, as they threw things on it, poured libations over it, buried it, how it got this like really wonderful surface to it. It became something else. So this sort of process and this history of um, being added to art objects was also very interesting to me. So what was the transition like going from <clears throat> sculpture to work that you produce now? The transition was a crazy one because I always thought... Um, I would be making sculptures, like massive sculptured installation. And then I realized I lived in New York and to store things <laughs> was a whole other thing. <laughs> it yeah. was very difficult to do storage. So I was thinking, oh, I can make them like in um, parts that come together. And then that got complicated because then there's multiple parts. And I, one of my teachers from undergrad was like, listen, focus you've always been painting and drawings I don't even know why you're thinking of these sculpture things and I was like oh god okay let me go back and focus on that and then just continue developing it and so it was interesting now is that the materials that I've used or I continue to use are the materials I've been using since studying architecture oh really yeah the mylar the ink um the only thing that's really been added has been the pigment stick and the glitter but the mylar and the ink is something I've been using for such a long time. has just always been there, and I could always go to it and work from it. So um, in one of the articles I read about you, um, it commented about how you spilled something in your purse, mm -hmm. and that inspired the ink. Yeah, like uh, in 2009, I quit my job, left New York, decided to travel for like a year and a half. Um, and I was supposed to be in Ghana for three months, I ended up spending a year there. And in the process, I had packed only the materials I had at home, which was always mylar ink and some watercolors, and then exploded in my bag. And so I figured I could just wash off the mylar paper because I would use like graphite and charcoal on it and then seal it. But then once I started washing it off, and I like no exaggeration, like pinning it on a clothing line to dry, it left this sort of nice staining effect. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Can I control it? How can I start to work with it? And that's where that sort of like, what people say now is like the marbling began. It was pouring some of these inks to see how I could, in essence, stain the paper and control where 
the flow went and how it interacted with other inks like to create something else. And in your mind, do you, you see how that could evolve into a different type of creativity or production? At the time, I was searching for a foundation for the work. Because prior to that, I was like using images from magazines, uh, old textbooks, all sorts of images that dealt with um, Black culture, evolution, particularly with ev- this evolution theory I was really interested in. So there was really not a place of me as the artist or anything about me in it. I was very much detached. And after a while, I sort of got bored with it. I wanted something that I could really work with for about 10 years. And I was like, give myself this decade thing, do a decade, (laughs) like push through this idea for 10 years and see what can happen. So in God, I was more focused on that, having this idea that can just keep expanding and expanding and expanding. I knew I'll find the materiality aspect of it, but it was more trying to find that concept that I could really expand upon. Mm. Your work features female body. Mm-hmm. How do you think that influences your images, the self-image of young women today? People always ask me that, and I don't ever know what to say. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry I don't have any more unique questions. No, but I no. Did wonder. But no, it's a good it's a good question, but it's it's like I don't wanna like I don't know how you say like come across egotistical and be like I don't think about that. But an aspect of making the work, I don't I'm not really in that place. I'm in that place of trying to get to a much more broader issue. But I, I can't sit and say, oh, this is like, you know, the female body is not important. Absolutely, it's, it's, it's the essence of what I'm doing. I mean, at first I started to use myself because it was a convenience. I was reliable. I showed up. I didn't have to pay me. It was just, <laughs> it just make things easier. Um, and also, too, in the poses, you know, some people, you know, they're not really good at manipulating their bodies and they don't feel comfortable and certain things like that. So I, I, it was just, I had me there so I could use me. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, it was like, how much of me can I use? You know, can I use just my face? Can I show up to my belly button? Can I just hold my breasts? And then after a while, I was like, okay, if you're going to use you, like, use you. Like, just let it go. And that was very difficult. Like, like shedding off the clothing. Yeah, you know, and like not wanting to go in and make body edits and like, oh, no, make that thigh smaller. You know, don't make that arm so flabby. <laughs> Trim it back, you know, things like that. So using you at 100% was very, very hard. So oftentimes when people ask me that question, I'm like, you know, it's hard for me like to put in the cellulite dense. Like, that's where I'm at. I'm so thinking, you feel naked, huh? You're completely really naked. Yourself. Yeah, really wow. exposing and <laughs> not editing out, you know, because that's, that's the nature of us. We want to, like, have that place where, you know, you present yourself a certain way, like you present the face, you present this image. And I'm, like, stripping away the image. Um, this is it. Like, I'm sitting there, I'm like, dang, you know, I want to put in. like, And also noticing weird things about you that you don't pay attention to like like the gap between my toes i'm just like when did this happen <laughs> <laughs> you know so i sit there i was like 
oh my god it's like your toes are not you know perfectly straight like you know it's like as you imagine and then you look at like wow there's like a little gap you know you know it's like a google is this good is this safe and then i'm like yes it is people are buying those heavy like sandals those heavy duty special sandals to spread the toes apart girl you are doing good get you know what i mean? like things like that so oftentimes um, when I'm asked that question, I know it's a very much relevant question, but the answering of it is that my mind space has never thought of it in that way. It's, I've been so introspective that now I'm just like, oh, oh yeah, it is me, you know, <laughs> things like that. I, you know, I really think that's great because it really does play more into your creating art that really represents you and how you think and mm-hmm. your vision it's not you're not being influenced by something on the outside like the feminist movement or the me too movement or mm-hmm. you know women should be more comfortable with their bodies it's mm-hmm. it's all just what's in your mind and it's driven by the work you want to create or should i i should say that those issues don't drive your creativity no cuz i i find that before, when I re- really delved into those issues, there was too much of a lag between processing what I want to say and actually the making of it. Because when you're reading through all of that and sifting through it, you, in a way, I felt like I was carrying a burden and <laughs> I didn't want to have a misstep in it. So in creating this work now, I've, I was like, okay, one of the reasons why I don't have this heavily rendered background is I don't want to have people like ground that figure into a particular space and make it political or make it, you know, this type of thing because they're, they're weighty. And I don't think when we process our own individual experiences, you know, there's a collective experience and then there's the individual experience. And I think they're equally as important. And oftentimes people want to pull you into the collective experience but the collective experience doesn't necessarily, you you know, you might not be in it a hundred at a hundred percent. You might be in it at like forty percent, because the individual experience is where you're presently like engaged in. Yeah, so that's what I feel. For me, I feel like those movements are important, you know, for women to have that ability to come out and be comfortable in their bodies. But I don't feel like. I have to delve into it 150% and make that part of my work. I think my work can potentially add to that statement and those things are happening and that sort of dialogue. But for me, it's about sort of releasing those burdens in a big way. Mm-hmm. Right, because I was going to ask you if, if you're a feminist, but you just answered my That's question. <laughs> <laughs> So you respect the feminist movement? Yes, absolutely. You know, the American perception of feminist is so different than what another woman living in another country would see feminism as. And the years of working and living in Ghana and in South Africa really changed my perspective of that and how you hold feminine power in a very patriarchal system. It's very different. Um, And I don't think the women, I just don't see it in the way that we do. 
And, and I learned this place of having comfort in being a woman in who you are. And it's not always having to come with like the fist and the pushback. There's a way where you can ease back and that actually you have greater results with it. So yes and no. <laughs> to your question. That would be an interesting panel discussion. Oh my have. gosh, they would just come at me. Well, <laughs> well, well, it would, they would learn. <laughs> they would learn. Yeah. Because it's important to appreciate different perspectives yeah. and reevaluate your own perspective. Yeah. Well, that's why I think it begins. It's you can learn all of this, everything about anything. But then how do you take that information, that knowledge, and then apply it to your own life and make it yours? That's where I think the gap, there's this gap that's like, that we're missing out on, is that period of just learning to make it your own thing. To be introspective. Yeah. And learn, yeah. Uh, interesting. Well, good. We won't get on the conversation then about mm-hmm. feminine because that's that's all right with me. So, um, you have an accent. Oh my! And God. I know you. Yeah. I know you started in New York, <laughs> left. Mm-hmm. So share with us. Yeah. So I, I was I was born in New York, and then um, I went. My parents sent me to Haiti, which was often during that time, um, because you know they were young. And it was stressful not having an extended family, especially both both my parents come from big extended families. And so during that time, it was normal. Like you, if you had a child in another country, you would send them back home and send money. You know the child's well taken care of. So I came back, went back, came back again. And uh, yeah. And so most of my life, I've pretty much grown up in New York. But, you know, in the house, we only spoke Creole. Okay, you know? All right. We only ate Haitian food. Seriously. Like, I told this to people, they laughed. I was like, look, I really did not know American food in that way. You know, and if, you know, if you had a very traditional Haitian mother, American food was like, I'll make the Haitian version of it. So to the point, like, I like Haitian spaghetti more than I like true Italian spaghetti. (laughs) So, you know, I grew up like that. Um, And then I did my grad and undergrad in New York. You know, was I was working as a recruiter, I was teaching and then trying to make art and felt like, oh, this is insanity. Trying to move maneuver through the art world. Um, it was difficult because I couldn't figure out, like, I felt like you needed some sort of key to a door. I saw the door, but I didn't have the key. And there was a long queue of everybody trying to, like, fit the keys to make the door open. And so one day I told my friend, I said, you know what? I'm going through the back door. I'm leaving here. I'm going to Ghana. I'm moving to Africa. No one ever believed me. They thought like, yeah, 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 until I did it. And what was interesting, within a month that I landed there, it just started this whirlwind of nonstop exhibitions. It was like, I don't know, something, it's like the planet knew I moved and relocated, so all the energy came with me. (laughs) And so they were worried because they were saying like, how are you gonna get your work? I'm like, blah, blah, blah. I says, look, I'm not going to Mars. I'm go like, there's FedEx, there's UPS, there's shipping. <laughs> like, wake up, people. There's planes that land, you know. So, I had that part sorted. And at that time, I was making um, these sort of drawings on mylar, so everything could be rolled. 
and in tubes. So I had that part sorted. And there was a kind of paper that can withstand moisture and all of that. So I was good to go. So you could travel with your work easily. I'd, I'd carry on just a tube. And then I shipped the inks and all of that. And it was just nonstop. So it became your full-time profession? Uh, th- well, then I was teaching. Oh, you were I teaching? Was, yeah, I was a dean oh. and teaching and making art, which is, was this utter insanity. <laughs> what were you teaching? Architecture? Uh, no, I was, teach- <laughs> <laughs> I was teaching drawing, painting, art history, oh, fashion okay. design. Uh-huh. Fashion, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, and trying to get a university off the ground. Yeah. So <laughs> you were practicing art nonstop. Always, always. So it was for the longest time I was, you know, working full time and making art full time. So tell us about the residency program that you're in now. Now I'm doing, uh, it's actually a fellowship fellowship, I'm sorry. And it is through the Tulsa Arts Foundation. Uh, Basically, they give you housing, a stipend, and a studio to work. So, And part of the program is to expand Tulsa's arts space and try to bring more artists into the city of Tulsa, and also to engage the community with more art. And of course, to give us time to work, which has been tremendous, yeah. So, I'm just curious when you say they give you time to work. Mm -hmm. So being in a different environment, completely different. How, how, tell me how that works as an artist. I mean, you're in a new space, you have the same materials, but is there an adjustment period for you to get comfortable enough to be able to create? For me, I've been, I had been working, I had like what I called the mobile studio. I hadn't had a studio since 2014. So the time I lived in Ghana, I was working out of the spare bedroom. I'd work on the beach. People didn't know most of these works were made like outside, inside. And then in South Africa, um, with the gallery I was in with, they had an artist resident, which was like a house and two of the rooms were studios. So I had to learn how to just within 24 hours, wake up and get to work. So for me, it was never like this long adjustment period. It's like I see some of the fellows, like it can take a long time and it's the same day. It's like, okay, we can go to work because a lot of it begins with the photo shoot and digital collages. So I'm always working. So even if I'm not in the studio, cutting the paper, painting the paper. There's always a lot of digital work that happens behind the scenes. So there, it's. I just learned to create a process that allowed me to travel and to move and create. And what inspired you to include glitter? Oh, wow. Okay, so... In, <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a beautiful action. In Ghana, um, my inks went bad. <laughs> I didn't know inks had a shelf life. <laughs> so, I didn't um, either. I, I quickly found out. <laughs> they just turned weird colors. It was from the humidity. Uh, so I, I was down to blues and blacks. Everything else went bad. And at the time, I was using a lot of browns and these like earthen tones. I was, and I couldn't find them in Ghana, of course. Couldn't find them in Nigeria. And then when I was trying to get them shipped in, it was like the cost was too high. So I was like, you going to work with blue? So I went to the art supply store and I have a really nice one. And they had just glitters. They had these little little small vials of blues and black glitters, like tiny. And I was like, let me try it out. Because I was just literally thinking of another hue. 
So I was like, if I want to use blue, I have only two or three blues. So if I start to dilute it, eventually they'll all start to look the same. They're not different enough, and I don't have another hue to maybe a yellow or an orange to differentiate that blue. So I figured the glitter would just become another hue, another or maybe another value of blue, and that's how it began. So it began really tiny, tiny components. Um, and then when I had the show in 2018 in Ghana, I had been living there. I knew what it was going to be. So I asked everything to be shipped in because I was tired of hauling art supplies across the world. I was like, you guys are shipping it. They agreed. Everything got there late. And for whatever reason, right before I left, I went and bought five pounds of glitter. Don't ask. I was like, you know, just <laughs> a lot of bring glitter. glitter. Right? And I figured, like, it's going to be during Christmas time. Somebody will want to buy glitter for me, you know. You know, I think like an African, somebody in a crowd will want something shiny, and they will find it. So, towards the end of the show, it's like everything didn't go according to plan, and I was just glittering. I became like a mad woman. I was like, you know what? This is gonna be glitter. The whole body's gonna be glittered, and uh, I worked up until maybe full a handful of hours before the show opens. So I was exhausted. I truly did not know what it was going to look like cohesively. I was like, we're going to see what happens. See if a croc can handle this because I haven't given up. <laughs> I had like glitter everywhere. And then when the show opened, I was like, oh, it's beautiful, no. right? This is going to start something. I said, dang, I'm in trouble now. Because, you know, you do something and you don't quite know what you're doing. And then the response is so positive yeah and then you're like they love oh, god it. <laughs> it's glitter <laughs> so yeah and that's and again i just for me it's like a hue so so what 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 determined the first color mm-hmm. palette the first colors that you chose because i see the greens the mm-hmm. blues and then every now and then there's some red mm-hmm. a purplish mm-hmm. so can you comment on that i mean i don't really see have i seen orange the earlier works, earlier they were works. much darker. So I always limit the color palette so that I don't get involved with the heavily rendering of it. Because when I first began, I would try to render the figure in every single aspect. And so I said, you know, just limit the color palette. This way, you can actually focus on more of the concept that you want to convey instead of trying to make the figure look perfect. So with each... A collection of works. I have just, okay, these are all the inks you're going to use for this series. And when it's done, you'll move to another set of colors. And that's just how it's been. And with the glitter, it was what I was able to find, which was the blues, blues. and the black. And then I found this blue, then I can't find it, and then I buy it. Or where, so you can't remember where you bought the <laughs> glitter, which is often happened. That's allowed. Yeah. And now recently I found this lavender one. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Can I handle lavender? What's it going to do? And I was like, ah, do it. <laughs> it's a glitter everywhere. So um, that's pretty much like how I make the color decisions. They're not this heavily processed thing. It's just more of like a technical thing, like limited to this. And this way you can focus on other aspects of what you want to do. Sounds like it's flowing naturally. <laughs> Do you see yourself incorporating any other materials into your work? Do you think about it? I do. I mean, I'm, I've even, like, fall, 
fall back on the glitter. I don't want to make it a crutch. So at some parts, like some pieces had none. Some people, have, some pieces have metal leaf. Um, I want to incorporate clay somehow. So I'm, I'm, I have three bags of clay that I want to try to use up in six weeks. We're going to see what happens. <laughs> so yeah, I, I want to try to see if I can incorporate clay because again, I, I miss that rendering of surface to make it look like other things to see what I can do with it. So there's a part of me that wants to now move with installation into these. And I think as it goes, I'll see what other aspects that I can work with. Um, laser cutting, just sort of precision cutting, I'm really interested in as well. To see like how this really tight edge goes against this really sort of uncontrolled edge where you see it's a little jagged and things like that. So yeah, I want to see how that develops. When I was at the fair, I noticed mm -hmm. a lot of clay work. Have you thought of small sculptures that are more easy to transport? See the trans. You see the transportation thing, and I was like, okay, I have to make shoebox sculptures. They have to fit in a shoebox, shoe right? Right. <laughs> I'm like, I can. You can stack shoeboxes, right? So that's what I've been thinking. I need shoebox sculptures. <laughs> if it's the size of a shoebox, then it's perfect. Yeah, I've been working on that, trying to figure it out. It's just also not having the time because it means I have to pause on the drawings and the paintings and then delve fully into it. So I've been looking at a lot of like 3D printing as a way to have multiples. They would again, they would be like addition, small addition shoebox sculptures or little installations that fit in shoeboxes, something. It's it's flowing in there. It's just having the time to sit and like go through the process of it. I look forward to that. Me too. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Do you think you'll ever move back to the US? Full-time? Half-time. Half-time. Yeah. How, how much time do you spend here now? Well, I've been here two years now for the, for the fellowship, but I've really missed living abroad. So I think half-time. Yeah, half and half. Yeah. I mm. think that would be ideal for me also. <laughs> Especially being in, mm -hmm. in Africa. Yeah, yeah, there's... Accra, the art, the whole art scene there is exploding. Yeah, the art is exploding. But also, too, it's also like the watch, to watch the rapid transformation of a city, of people, of practices. There's that. That really interests me more, just to see like how people make do or make new with old things. That's very much interesting to me as well, because that all feeds into my work of how like people are seeing themselves in reference to, say, Facebook. When I went in 2009, I made this joke with my friends. I said, remember when you guys used to like text me? I used to text them and they used to be like, what is this thing you're doing? I was like, I'm texting you. And they're like, call me. So I said, okay, I gotta call them. Um, and then when you wanted to go to Facebook, when you go to a cafe. So at this point, you have to leave your home and go to a cafe. And there was a socialization. This is only like 2009, 2010. So it was a string of cafes. And some of them even had dial-up. So you'll be there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> right? But there was this whole community of um, mostly owned by young men. Maybe their uncles had some money and helped give them a startup. And 
they would become these tech heads, you know, learn to take apart computers and things like that. But the idea was that you leave your house and you would go and you go on Facebook. So there was designated time for all of this type of stuff. But now everyone is in their homes behind the phone. And like we see how it's changed, you know, American society and how we communicate, but it's dramatically changed. Like for, for example, a country like Ghana, where like even your granny in remote regions, she's like WhatsApping you. Like even like Haitian culture, like it's wonderful. I love it. But no, it's like crazy. It's like people have become news reporters. Like my, pa- no, it's true. My parents like get news. Like something happens in the neighborhood where people would wait for police. Now they go out and report news. Everybody's <laughs> just like everyone is like a news reporter. Everyone has like mini TV shows. It's fantastic in that way. But that community aspect right. that I enjoyed almost—it's just ten it's years gone. ago. Yeah. yeah, it's like done. Yeah. Yeah, but the artists, mm-hmm. their work can be seen by everybody. Yes, and that has been, I think, the most positive thing about being an artist now is that you don't have to wait to have an exhibition for people to see your work and for people to go to the exhibition or wait for a magazine or um, what's it, an advertisement about the exhibition. People can just do two clicks and actually see your work, and that's the part that I've loved tremendously. Yeah, and they can buy your work online, too. Exactly. But you know what? They don't come to your studio as much. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I enjoy studio visits. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see the work in person. Because sometimes yeah. the textures and everything, you really need to be. Yeah, you need to you be need there to be able to see. see it up close. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So it ha- it's, it's had its plus and it's had its minuses. But like I like being in Africa, I enjoy to see this like total change, this flipping over of change with technology and all of that. It's been so interesting to me. So we're gonna be coming to a close soon, but I do want listeners to hear about any future shows, exhibitions, work that you wanna share with us. Okay, so what I have upcoming is a residency at the Joan Mitchell Foundation I saw in that. New Orleans. That's fantastic. Congratulations. So, thank you. I'm very excited. I've never been to New Orleans, and I'm so interested in its history with Haiti. So that's going to be an interesting project that I do there. And then I'm part of the DECA Biennale, and uh, that's the end of May in Senegal. And let's see, then I have an artist residency in Lagos and I'm like over the moon for that now it'll be three months so yeah so this year is a year of residencies a bit of travel not too many exhibitions and you know trying some of these things out that we've spoken about the little shoebox sculptures yeah (laughs) let's hope TSA doesn't give me issues (laughs) so last but least so what lasting impact would you like to have with my work? Yes. Hmm. I think with the work that I'm doing now, which seems to be like the trajectory of where I want to continue, it's it's that, that introspection. To me, I'm like, I don't feel like it's great to have um, the accolades and the reviews from your peers and from the larger art world. But it's the, when someone sees the work, it they self-reflect for a little bit and think about something else, you know, that it triggers something within them, you know, that have them take that moment. 
that to me is where I want the work to be. Yeah, yeah. that's good. So you care about others. That's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you once again. Thank I you. appreciate your time. This has been a great conversation. Ah, thank you so it's much. It's always good to laugh. It feels good. <laughs> thank you again. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. 